Please note that the contents of model mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on model mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about Model Mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. For this episode, we are honoured to be speaking with Jolie Jones. Jolie is a trailblazer in the modelling world. Not only was she one of the first black models to be featured on the covers of magazines in the late 1960s, including Seventeen, Mademoiselle and more, she is the daughter of legendary Quincy Jones. Since that time, Jolie has lived many lives and her career spans from the early days of modelling, acting, singing and becoming a mother to now becoming an artist and a grandmother. Jolie has decided to come onto this podcast to publicly disclose her lifelong battle with addiction. Since she started modelling in her teens, using substances such as speed, prescription pills and alcohol, it became a life of which allowed her to escape from herself. And upon reflection, she hopes that by sharing her story, she can help educate young people on healthier ways to cope with stress and emotions. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we recorded this interview once in person at Spotify and also remotely through the Anchor app. And therefore, the sound quality may differ throughout this interview. All right, super excited to have you here with us today. This is Thank be, you, me too. Yeah, this is going to be a good conversation. Um, I kind of wanted to just give a little background to the listeners. Um, like, where were you born and where did you spend your childhood? I was born here in New York, New York City. And uh, <clears throat> we had a short period, year and a half or so, when I was four in Paris. My father had a band over there. And uh, so I went to first grade there in a French Catholic school, learned to speak French. And uh, then we moved to California when I was turning 16. Cool. Yeah. Um, what years were you actively modeling? And like what age would that have been for you? Um, I think I was asked to start with Eileen at um, like between, right before I turned 13, between 12 and 13. <clears throat> and uh, so I started. And, um, and then by the time I was... 14, 15, I was really working a lot, so I went to professional school, did my work at home, went into school once a month to do all the tests, and I was working every day. It's insane. What, yeah. what years was this? Um, let's see. Uh, 64, probably 65 when I started, 65, <clears throat> and then 
67, 68, 68 and 69 were like sort of the, when it started to really peak. Mm. Um, how did you get scouted to model? Well, my father got uh, together after the, uh, their divorce with a young Swedish model, uh, and she was with Eileen Ford. And uh, one Christmas season, I went to Eileen Ford's Christmas party with them, and uh, it, it was just when I had kind of grown over the summer a couple of inches, and I used, was before that, it was kind of chubby, <clears throat> and the two inches sort of thinned me out and sucked me in, and all of a sudden it was like a different story, which I hadn't quite realized yet, until I went to this party, and Eileen said, would you like to model? So, of course, I said, yes, <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning. And uh, so when I took all my height measurements and things like that, I, she, she said to me, I, she said, how tall are you? I said, 5'5". Five, five. She said, you're 5'6". <laughs> I said, no, I'm 5'5". Five, five. She said, no, you are 5'6", because I don't take anybody under 5'6". I remember when I started, I was, I was 14, and they were, I, they were like, how tall are you? I'm like, I don't know, like 5'10". She's like, no, you're 5'10 and a half. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, that's weird. They still do that. Oh, and yeah. you're five ten. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I am, but I've been apparently I've been five ten and a half since I was fourteen years old. <laughs> yeah, it was like years before I realized I would always say I was five six, and then I'll, I might even be a little under five five. I don't know. Yeah, always rounding up and then rounding down with the measurements. It's yeah. like, um, so what was it about modeling when you started? What was appealing to you about the industry and everything? Um. I don't think it was so much the industry as it was just having some excitement and something going on in my life, you know. Mm. I can relate to that, definitely. Yeah. Like the excitement of leaving school and going to a shoot. Well, for me, I was obviously still in school, but like, yeah, it was something completely out of the ordinary. And it almost felt like an honor to be included in that industry at that time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure now, but... Um, do you remember how you felt entering into the industry at such a young age? Oh, I was terrified. <laughs> but I didn't let anybody know. Yeah. You know, I acted like I was totally cool and it was all fine. And, and inside I was just like shaking in my boots. You know, it was crazy. Because at that time, most of the models were, you know, turning 20. They were early 20s, older, much older. And it was just the beginning of really young models. So everybody was always so much older than me, and I was just afraid to say anything ever because I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can relate to that as well. Yeah. Like sitting in shoots at the lunch table and everyone discussing things, and I'm just like, I wish I could contribute, and everyone's going to be aware that I haven't said something in 30 minutes. But Right, and someone look at you and, and, and act like they think you know what they're talking about and ask you a question, and you just go, oh, yes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Not knowing anything about what they're talking about. Without a doubt. Um, so describe for listeners a little bit about your modeling career, like your highlights and your legacy as a model. I was one of the first models that they put in Seventeen magazine, Glamour magazine, Mademoiselle magazine. I also had the first black cover of Mademoiselle in 69. And there were not a lot of black models at the time. I remember Naomi Sims and uh, um, <clears throat> a couple others. 
Um, but in these magazines, uh, I was the first black model and they would put us in like a, a three models and I would be, you know, the, it would be a triple. And because I had light skin and light eyes and my hair could go either curly or straight, it was an easy kind of blend in to sort of initiate diversity in the magazines. I didn't realize at the time that it was as significant as it was, you know. And then it, you know, quickly became, you know, wasn't always doubles and triples, but Colleen Corby was big then, and uh, Twiggy had just, um, Gene Shrimpton, Verushka, it was like a whole different era than it is now. And we didn't have this uh, really, you know, like, not well emaciated thin thing you know we were we were lean but um it's you know it's gone to another level now mm. and uh i think about my granddaughter who's eight and looking at what we're presenting as you know what the world looks like in the magazines and that's like uh tricky yeah it's terrifying especially like knowing these models and knowing you know what some of them have to go through in order to maintain that size like it's it's not really sustainable having being in the industry now I think I, I see a change and I don't feel like it's happening fast enough but I do see more of a conversation around diversity and acceptance um but I wish it would move faster <laughs> um in that vein, what advice do you wish you could have heard as a new face model? Well, anything really, because uh, I don't remember getting much advice, you know. That hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's not a lot of guidance. The one thing that I remember is Eileen Ford did not take any, you know, funny business. You know, you didn't cancel jobs. Uh, photographers did not make passes at you, you know, like, I don't know what's going on now. But um, at that time, it was very well known that she did not tolerate that. There was none of that going on. So that was good. So I did have that. <clears throat> but I think, I think it would be good to have, like, a, a couple of training courses, you know, how to deal with your money. Yes, that would be an amazing thing. Yeah. How to take care of your health. Um, but the money thing was a big thing for me. No one, uh, I didn't have any guidance about that. Mm -mm. So, you know, at the time it gave me a really distorted view about it. I didn't, I didn't know how to manage it. No, and it's very disorienting to be such a young age and earning that kind of money. Mm -hmm. And you don't really have the foresight as a teenager to realize that this isn't how it's going to be forever. Well, what do you have to base it on? I mean, yeah. you have no experience. You know, I think we were talking about the other day. Um, teenagehood is when you're supposed to go through this very uncomfortable phase, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. If you don't wait the whole period out and go through that discomfort it's uncomfortable you know and uh, if you don't go through that and naturally come out the other side you don't have the foundation to build your life moving forward you know definitely it's interesting i feel like models get 
scouted and start working at the age where most women are going to college and like learning what they will and will not stand for and kind of who they want to be in the world. And as a model, you learn to turn up on set completely blank slate, like something that to be worked with, but you don't have any control over the outcome usually. And I, I've always found that it seems to like delay that mental development until you get a bit older and you kind of realise what you missed out on in those years. You know, you see your friends going to college and starting these like quote unquote real jobs. And I don't know, it's, or it feels for me, it's like I'm playing catch up quite a lot with my friends from home, which is a little bit disorienting. Um, Plus you're dealing with things um, at an age where you don't have the skills or any reference point. You know, you've got a lot of focus on you and no center, you know, yeah. built up. I definitely like, and it's it's really strange to be, you know, I'm 28 um, and only now realizing just how far that had gone, you know, and not like, it's disorienting to realize like how much I put up with that I shouldn't have. It's interesting to be going through this at this age. You mm. know, I'm like, why couldn't I have gone through this at like 18 or 19? <laughs> yeah, when you had some skills. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, what advice would you give to the parents of a model, a new face model today? Be more present. Mm. You know, be there. Go to the jobs. Um, just be more involved. Give some give the guidance because I think I know for me, you know, my mother and father had divorced. My mother was from a generation that was never really not like now where you're. Raised to to think that you you can be independent and and that's what you're heading towards. You really were just wanting to be married and have kids. And she, I was such a strong-willed kind of you know, apparently capable that I don't think she knew how to step in, you know, and and sort of guide me and. Um, I mean, I veered off from where we were, what we were talking about, but um, I acted like I had it together. So how would, you know, she, she believed it. And I think a lot of young people, teenagers especially, you know, have this mask of whatever they want to present to the world, but behind it is going on what's supposed to be going on. And, you know, you're still a kid, but you're in this body that's becoming an adult and you don't really have the tools. I think parents should really, it's not something I would want my kids to do at a young age. Yeah. I, I feel incredibly grateful that my parents, they traveled with me basically up until I moved to New York when I was, I moved here when I was 16, 17. Um, and I was furious with them at the time. Like I hated it. I was the most, I thought I was so independent and, right. you know, and now thinking back, it's like, Oh, I'm really glad they did that, mm -hmm. you know, and I actually could have used their guidance for many years beyond that. You know, I, I do see a lot of um, models today who bring their mothers with them everywhere. And I, yeah, I think that's an incredibly important and grounding experience because it's like, for me, the danger happens when I'm alone in a hotel room, you know, that's when I want to check out basically, like, and I will do anything to do that. And having like a parent there to just be like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's incredibly important. Or taking you out to dinner or a museum or someplace in the town you're in to explore or just having company. Yeah, definitely. 
I think if you're willful, though, that can be hard. Yeah. Like when I was, I remember when I was younger, my dad was with me at a shoot in Australia somewhere and I snuck out of the hotel room to go have drinks with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been 15, like, all right. Um, Looking back, how do you feel today about your identity as a model? Well, I don't think I realized when I was in it that it was such a landmark thing that I was, you know, breaking through a ceiling. You know, I remember Oprah telling me, oh, my God, I had your picture up on the wall. And, you know, this was just like such a big deal to see someone that I could relate to in the magazines. But when I was going through it, well, first of all, I was kind of, you know, high all the time at after a certain point, after the, you know, after I peaked. Um, so I wasn't really thinking through, you know, my career or what was going on. You know, I was kind of oblivious to it. But... um you know, it was a big deal at the time. I mean, now you see diversity everywhere. You know, even the commercials. You know, I sit with my mother watching television and we're looking at the commercials. Every single commercial about everything has an interracial couple and kids. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing <clears throat> that you're the pioneer of all that. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's interesting that you weren't connected to the, like, the, the, Hmm, words. It's interesting that, like, at the time, you weren't like connected to the like the gravity of it. Yeah, I think that uh, my life was very unusual, and at the same time, I had no idea that it was not "quote unquote" normal lifestyle. And the people that I w- grew up around, until I started to go outside of my own sphere, were very diverse and eclectic and um, kind of magical, you know, um, Sarah Vaughn, Billy Eckstein, Count Basie, Peggy Lee, all these, you know, unique, incredible, different kind of people were the people that I first was exposed to in my life. Uh, It wasn't until I was much older and I started going to friends' homes at 10 years old, maybe, uh, maybe a little younger, eight uh, where I saw that there was this other sort of more mainstream world of, you know, nine to five, where um, people had real schedules. They went to work at a certain time in the morning. They came home. Everybody sat down and ate meals together at six o'clock. And, you know, like a, a different kind of lifestyle. Um, and my world really was all based around music and people that were in the music business. Describe what keeps you grounded today because you're an artist, you have a lot of creative outlets and I'm always so curious about how being creative like grounds me personally. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, for me, it uh, relaxes me and opens me up. Of course, there's frustration involved in, you know, painting or drawing. Also, you have those moments you have to break through um, in art, but then when I get in the flow of kind of losing myself in something and not having that, um, what's the word, when you're just too aware of yourself while you're doing something and critical and um, judge judging what you're doing, when you just sort of allow that creativity to happen and flow, um, it's kind of like a healing in a way. 
uh, for me when I get in that space, it's like a relief. Do you know what I mean? I definitely, I know exactly how that feels. Yeah. You can kind of stop looking at yourself and that opens you up to like everything else around you and all the possibility. Yeah. You get out of yourself and it just allows something to come through you. Yeah. I think creativity is like that. You know, it's, it's the hardest part is bringing yourself to the table and sitting yourself down to write or to draw or to paint or whatever you're doing that's creative. Um, and then another element comes in. It's like the universe will support you if you take the first step. Definitely. Yeah, the hardest thing is always like picking up the pencil or like putting down the first word. But then once you're in it and the flow state kicks in, it's pretty magical. Yeah. Yeah. When you stop uh. procrastinating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know that you've like talked a little bit about trying different spiritual programs. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that? Well, you know, obviously because of my age, I've done many, many different things over the years to, you know, help myself feel better, help myself get grounded, fill in whatever holes I felt I had. Um, I did some Tony Robbins things. I did Landmark. I've done um, Carolyn Miss uh workshops and uh, wow just so many different modalities um, spiritual practices um, one of the most effective things in my recent years that helped me get past my electromagnetic hypersensitivity was a program called DNSR which is dynamic neural retraining systems and it's a neuroplasticity program where you learn to retrain your brain and learn how to grow new neural pathways and change behaviors and, um, you know, actually really be able to create the kind of life and person you want to be and have. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it is really amazing. I think that, uh, you know, it's more mainstream now, this neuroplasticity area of work with your brain and even therapy uh, to break through things, to heal different things, um, that your brain is really what kind of initiates everything in your body and that they've learned in the last 10 or 15 years that we're not stuck with our genes and what we were born with and our habits and things that we've acquired through our life or even our subconscious programming. We can change our brain that our, our brain is more has more plasticity than we ever imagined, you know. We don't have to degenerate with age. We can keep regenerating neural pathways and changing our brain and our patterns and our habits and our health and, you know, our lives through working with and doing exercises that reprogram and retrain. Yeah, the other thing that's... Uh really important I think for grounding is um, nature you know getting in nature because that's how we're meant to live mm -hmm. is among trees and birds and our feet on the ground you know 
Um, so I feel best when I'm in the woods or by the ocean. And uh, I think people are more disconnected, not just because of technology, but because we're also not grounded, literally, to the electromagnetic field of the Earth. Plus, um, it's more known now, but uh, the rubber on the bottom of everybody's shoes sort of disconnects you from that um, electromagnetic field of the Earth. And the field of the Earth is getting weaker with what we're doing to it. So we're not as connected. I know your immune system is really balanced by that, being connected and getting the um, electromagnetic field of the Earth. And if you don't get enough of that, your immune system isn't as strong as it should be. Right. Take off your shoes off. Take your shoes off. Walk on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Sand, whatever. Mm. I think now's a good time to go deeper. Dr. Alley. So, Julie, it's so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to start with why you were interested in coming to speak on our podcast. Mainly that, you know, I've been in such isolation for the last 10 years because of this EHS and my sensitivity and not being able to be in the modern world. So I'm trying to say yes to things when I'm asked um, because it's been so inhibiting and I've not been able to do things, you know, publicly. So um, it's like a coming out party maybe. Um, I know we spoke a little bit about your early years and you mentioned to Bridget um, about during your modeling career you were high. So I wanted to go back to that time. You mentioned when you started modeling, you were alone, you were out of your house at a young age, um, and you would often walk on the street and there was a sense of fear, right, by people looking at you because of the way you looked and also difficulty working every day. So tell us a little bit about anxiety and fear during that time. Yeah, well, um, you know, in, back in, uh, in the 60s, downtown where all the photographers were in the 20s and the 40s, and you know, the neighborhoods were not as, you know, gentrified and, and safe feeling necessarily. Where were you living at the time? Well, I was living uptown, you know, with my mother in the 80s. But um, a lot of the ghosties were downtown. And so I was walking up streets uh, with my portfolio all dolled up. Um, And, you know, construction guys would sort of yell at you and, you know, whistle and stuff. And it was terrifying. I mean, at 14 years old, looking like you're 18 or 19, you know, I was terrified and um, just like shaking in my boots. And by the time I was 15, you know, my middle, middle, right before I turned 16, um, I had a boyfriend who was much older. He worked in the bars on Second Avenue and I was doing my schoolwork at home. I was going to a professional school because I was working every day and I would do all my schoolwork at home and I'd go in once a month and take my tests and stuff. It was like a, you know, what do they use the word for that? Um, I can't remember, but I didn't have to go every day. And, uh, you know, I was nervous in front of the camera. And uh, I don't know, my inner life really was so uncomfortable most of the time that, you know, I started to take a little bit of Valium before going to work. And then um, my boyfriend introduced me to... uh, 
speed, you know, snorting a little bit of speed so that I could have the energy to go through my whole day of work, do all my homework, and then hang out with him, you know. So it started young. I didn't do that for long because I don't think that's sustainable. Um, but you start to try to do things to make you comfortable, you know, and and you don't really have the skills to talk about what's going on inside. And that's an age where you really need a lot of guidance and conversation and sharing about life. So how were you doing emotionally back then? Yeah, I was at, you know, the beginning of my teenage life when I first started modeling. And like I, I've mentioned before, you know, you're supposed to be going through this awkward period and like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. It's it's hard. It's, you know, takes a lot of effort. It's painful. And, and, and the only way to go through it and come out is going through that pain. There's no way to ease the discomfort. And I was trying to ease that discomfort. And uh, my fear and insecurity just were raging inside me. And I think a lot of it had to do with I hadn't gone through that period where I worked things out, where I figured out who I was, where I, you know, went through those trials and tribulations of growing. And so I had this kind of hole inside and um, I couldn't take how uncomfortable it was. So I just tried to cover it up with a substance. Right. And you mentioned earlier that often maybe you or people give the appearance from the outside that there is composure. Oh, yeah. You know, I had everybody fooled, especially my mother, you know, but then she could see, you know, with the drugs because you think you're hiding it all. But, you know, your mother knows mm. and uh, she didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, so you're just acting. She thought I had it together because I was acting like I had it together. So upon reflection of the drug use during that time, what is your view on that now? Oh, it's just so detrimental. I mean, it's just like a, um, what's the word? Like a stop sign on emotional development, you know, because there's no getting around it. You know, at some point you're going to have to go through that process. And that's the age you're supposed to go through it. And you're fresh and, you know, if you you can go through that, then you've got the foundation. Everything's built on a foundation. And if you just keep going without the foundation, at some point you're going to have to fill in the blanks and the cracks. And by that time, you've made a lot of life decisions under the influence of something. You're not making your choices from a healthy place. So do you think that got you in trouble in the early years? Well, you know, there's two ways to look at it. Yes, of course, it got me in trouble, you know, or I made, you know, decisions that I look back on and realize I could have made some better choices, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then there's the knowing that, you know, you become who you become from all the things you've gone through. So it's a hard balance, you know, to, you, you can't get into, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I hadn't done that. I mean, I have two beautiful sons who have given me two beautiful grandchildren, 
and two beautiful daughter-in-laws. And um, so, you know, any choice that I made differently in my youth or my past may have not, I wouldn't necessarily have those people in my life. So, you know, I'm not saying it's, uh, it's just if you have the guidance and you can go through those, you know, challenging periods young and come out of it with a strong foundation, you've got a better place to build your life house, you know. Exactly, from a place of awareness. And like yeah, it's a conscious choice. It's yeah. like, you know, it's also kind of your subconscious, which is imprinted on you by your environment and the people around you. You don't have those choices by the time you're seven years old. As an adult, when you get distracted in your life, your subconscious comes and grabs you and takes you places that you may not have gone if you were consciously making a choice. And here you are making it from your subconscious, which you didn't choose the things that are in there, if you if I'm explaining it right. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the anxiety and I say the word anxiety because you use the Valium, right, to to help things or ease how you were feeling. Oh, and alcohol and weed, you know. OK, so there are multiple substances. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the 60s. Everybody was doing right, it. Right. Pills. Readily available. Seconals. Hmm. Diet pills. Okay, so for quaaludes. I mean, it was just crazy then. Yeah. So for you then, would you say it was out of? I mean, I understand the Valium speed connection, right? Kind of anxiety and then energy, but the substance use for you, what was uh, how what what fueled it for you? Like, was it fun and escapism and recreation, or was it anxiety and getting rid of emotions, or a combination? I think it's a combination of all of that. You know. The nerves, I think, were first. The uncomfortable feeling. You know what was uncomfortable? Like, was it, I know you mentioned how you felt on the street and walking alone and feeling unsafe. What about at work, like doing the work? Because that's what you're doing a lot of the day. Yeah, well, it's, it's. I, I, I don't know. I felt very insecure on the, I can't even remember what we called it, in front of the paper or, you know, on location or on the set. Um, nobody really, you kind of learn by osmosis, you know, nobody teaches you how to pose or what looks good or, you know, what to think when you're trying to look a certain way or, you know, there's, there could be like a little course that would be good, you know, to get you going. But you kind of learn by watching the older models and, uh, the photographers, if they're generous, um, Looking at the pictures after, um, yeah, the Polaroids. Right. So like any Polaroids. job, on-the-job training would have been helpful, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, I, there was no training. I still remember like being on my first shoot and being in this huge room and it was just me and I was 14 and then there's just this sea of people looking at me. And it's like I would had been in hair and makeup, I'd been in school earlier, hair and makeup, and then there's just people and I'm like, and how old did you look? I, I probably looked like 19, 20. I've always looked right. really young. But like, yeah. And then I was like, oh, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. And that, that feeling of just like my stomach dropping and me leaving my body, I was just like, nope. But I'm, I had photographer, one photographer in particular who was really patient with me. And she just like, yeah, she took her time with me. And she taught me how to model. And I'm forever grateful. But even 
Yeah, it's it's such a foreign world. Unless you've grown up in it, unless you have some sort of connection to it, if you're just pl- plucked out of obscurity and placed in a set like that, it's like you just have to figure it out. And at, as a, at 14, at 13, even, gosh, for me, 17, 18, like I wasn't ready. It's not natural. No. No. Yeah. So, and then with the substance use, do you remember a time in your teens where it peaked, where it became difficult for you? Yeah, 16. Um, My mother and I actually left New York City to move to California to be close to my dad then. Um, It was either going to be Switzerland or California Um, because that boyfriend, I broke up with him, but he was kind of stalking me. And uh, I had, you know, just, I didn't want to do the drugs anymore. Um, But we just went from, you know, one kettle to another to Los Angeles. I mean, then I got into sort of the Hollywood glamorous drug world, you know. And how long was drug and alcohol use an issue for you? Well, you know, under the influence of most, you know, the alcohol was straight through, I think. And the drugs dwindled down. But, you know, even between my kids, uh, my pregnancies, there was some drug use going on. And and then, you know, I think I also had uh, periods where I was doing really big projects uh, as I was older. And I was taking um, little pieces of uh, Vicodin, chip, chipping, you know, just to take the edge off. Not like really... Well, who knows if I was really out of it. But I was, you know, accomplishing a lot at the time. But, you know, you see that a lot everywhere. Yeah, so taking the edge off. So presumably then there was a lot of anxiety or stress. Yeah. At baseline. Yeah, and I think, you know, I drank a lot of wine Okay. over the years. Not now, but, uh, yeah, it was all about taking the edge off. So alongside the drug use we're speaking about, I'm curious to hear more about your family life. So it sounds like your mother has been a great influence, and I know that you are taking care of her right now. So I was wondering if you could speak to her a bit and the influence in your life. Yeah, I was so, so lucky. Um, Even though she didn't really know how to deal with me because I was kind of a wild card, she was into some things that very ahead of the curve. You know, when I was growing up, she was into Adele Davis, which was about nutrition. And we're talking the 50s when, you know, it was not like prevailing. And she was into Gurdjieff, which was a very deep spiritual practice. And she she really is a very deep, spiritual, giving, unselfish person. And, um, you know, she sacrificed a lot for my father's career because they met in high school and they were high school sweethearts. And they were interracial couple at a time when that was not the thing to do. She was uh, kicked out of sororities because of it in high school. And, uh, you know, she sacrificed financially because they had nothing when they were first together and when I was young um, so that he could go down and hang out with the people at Basin Street East that he needed to be around to further his career and she would stay home and didn't have a lot of extra money for babysitters. So, you know, I was very lucky to have someone like that, you know, raising me. So your father the legend. Um, and I know you mentioned that, yeah, earlier on, your norm was your norm. That was where you grew up. You didn't question it until you started seeing how other people lived, which was a different way. 
So as you grew up, let's say through your 20s and 30s and 40s, and since we're talking about mentality, right, the mind, how did growing up, you know, with someone like your father, with that influence, how, how did, this is a big question, but how did it affect you psychologically? And I know it's co probably complex and complicated, but let me try to, what comes to mind if I ask it that way? Oh, I think, you know, I was blessed because I grew up watching people do huge things, believing that they could do anything. You know, this belief that if you could see it, my father always said that, if you can see it, you can be it. And there were just very little limitations put around desires and dreams and things you want to accomplish. Uh, so I think I, I feel very lucky to have been around that kind of energy growing up because I really have that feel that anything, I can do whatever I decide to do. And also the opportunities that I was gifted through his life of being exposed to the world and traveling and feeling like I was part of a, a larger community, a global community, and seeing that people all over the world live uh, all the different ways and different cultures that there are in the world and how although there are all these different cultures and all these different ways to live, we are really all the same, you know. Um, I think that was a huge gift. And the quality of music and people that I grew up around and that I got to meet as a result. Um, you know, I was very blessed growing up the way I, I did as a result of what my father did and his life and his heart and what he gave to the world. And, you know, I was very proud of him growing up. He was in a different kind of, when I was young, he wasn't as famous as he became. He was well known in a certain circle, in the jazz circle, in a very elite kind of music world. Uh, it wasn't until the Michael Jackson period that he was like so mega famous. When I was young, you know, I knew he was special, but it was kind of like certain people knew him and it felt really kind of cool. And then it became more like I would walk into a room or I would go to a place and people already knew, you know, before I got there, who he was. Whereas when I was young, I, it was much more anonymous and, but it was just like, you know, I, people would know before they even met me because people would say, oh, Quincy Jones' daughter. Or, or the, just the fact that they even knew was like, oh, you know, felt very kind of invasive in a way. It was, there was something very, yeah. It, when I was young, I, I, I was autonomous. And then as I got, you know, as an adult, it changed and it became a, a different thing. I don't know quite how to explain it. Not that it was good or bad, just very, very different, you know. Your parents divorced, you know, when you were a child. And I was just wondering, how did that affect you emotionally? Well, I remember when my parents told me they were going to get divorced, I was very surprised because they didn't fight or argue. There wasn't 
that kind of uh, dissension in the house. So I was surprised, but I remember also covering that and, you know, another kind of adolescent behavior of not wanting to show, you know, how upset you are about something or how vulnerable you could be. And then I remember later that day being in the shower and crying, but not doing that in front of my parents. So they may not have thought that I really had a big reaction, but I did. It was a kind of a delayed reaction. And, you know, there was a, a huge change, I think, for every kid. There's a huge change when there's a divorce in the family. Um, I don't remember talking about it a lot. And that's another, you know, example of how I think really communication is just so important to flush out your feelings and work through your feelings and understand things a little better. Um, the house, the energy in the house changed, of course, because my father had a lot going on <clears throat> and then he left. And so there wasn't a lot going on. Probably it was a big part of why I, you know, grabbed onto the modeling thing so eagerly was to, you know, fill a vacuum of that space that was left. And you can kind of understand as you grow up how difficult a time it is for when you're the one going through the divorce, you know, i.e. your parents, mm -hmm. um, and that they may not necessarily realize that the need for this sort of working through for you, because they're going through their own thing. I think, you know, that happens so much when you grow up. You realize and you think about what your parents went through and how they grew up and how they were parented and uh, and then you realize why you know how they came to their parenting you know it's interesting so let's fast forward now because i'd love to touch upon the last 10 years of your life and how you've been doing i know you mentioned to me that you've been struggling with a phenomenon called electromagnetic hypersensitivity and also alcohol use the phenomenon you mentioned, electromagnetic hypersensitivity. It's not something that I've studied or it's not my area of expertise, but can you just tell us, you know, in 30 seconds what it is and who, how you came about to find out that's what you had? Well, it's a sensitivity to radio frequency waves, which are what gets emitted from cell phones and Wi-Fi and cell towers. And, uh, and it's surprisingly affecting 5% of the population of the entire world and growing. Um, you know, they just have not been testing and regulating this technology. So, and who, how did you come about learning that this was what it was affecting you? Like, who helped you? Well, I just happened to be in Santa Barbara where one of the leading experts in the field, Cindy Sage, was. And she was a friend of a friend of mine, and we were introduced, and she sort of tipped me to, you know, it happened when I moved into a certain place there. And um, I was just lucky that I was around some people that knew about it. So they told me, you know, well, experiment. They gave me a little, she gave me a little meter to carry around with me that when it was exposed to radio frequency waves, it would beep. It would beep lightly if it wasn't very strong and very loudly and consistently if it was. And I was amazed when it would go off. I'd be driving, I couldn't see anything, and it would just be going, tuk, 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 you know, like crazy. Um, and she told me to stay off my BlackBerry for a while and stay off my iPod for a while. And I was living, I had a place, uh, I was homesteading a place on an off-the-grid island up in British Columbia. And 
there was nothing. No paved roads, no police, no hospital, no stores, no uh, sewage, no trash pickup. It was all, you know, off the grid. And so I was homesteading this place. And I, at the time, was very into technology and had my BlackBerry there, and that's how I communicated with people and everything. And the island was talking about going wireless, which would have been great, everybody thought, you know. And I was going back and forth to the States to there till I got the place far enough along to build a house. And the island decided to go wireless. And right before that is when I got my sensitivity. So that summer I was planning to start my little house. Um, and when I got up there, I couldn't function on my property because they had installed the tower across the water. And I was on the waterfront and it was beaming right on my property and probably bouncing off the water onto the rocks behind me. And I could, I walked around in circles for weeks. I couldn't figure out what was. My joints were killing me. I couldn't think my way out of a paper bag. It was just weird. And uh, finally, I decided to go up and inland and spend the night at a friend's house. And overnight, I was better. And then I went back to the property. I had to sell. I had to sell it. And that was the beginning of me you know, running around the world looking for a safe place to live. And going back to alcohol use, the last 10 years has also been a time where alcohol use increased and you've become sober. You, you told me that in 2018, you became sober. Mm-hmm. Um, what finally led you to stop? Well, I think that I was getting pretty tired of wanting to not drink. Uh, by that time, it really was alcohol. It wasn't pills or any other substances. It was just alcohol, mostly wine. And, you know, I, I would stop for a few months, not drink, or more than a few months, and then, you know, I'd go back to it. And I really wanted to just be clear most of the time and make more conscious decisions. Uh, also, I had a couple of incidents where I really drank too much and scared myself in a way, driving, you know, in dangerous situations, not being able to remember how I got to where I was going, you know, things like that, that really, really scared me. And, uh, you know, I'm rebuilding my life, as I said before, uh, just coming back into the modern world. And I, I really want this part of my life to be the most conscious, um, clear, good choice, good choices and decisions part of my life. And um, I realized that in order to do that, I really needed to not have alcohol be a part of my life anymore. And this process of recovery, what has helped you sustain your sobriety? What really helped me was, you know, a community of like-minded people um, creating like a morning practice that I did every morning consistency, consistently. Cleaning up my side of the street, you know, a part of why you drink or things you don't want to think about. So when I thought about things and I realized that, you know, I had a part or a play in a relationship going sour or a situation that happened, um, I tried to acknowledge with that person and clean up my side of the street, so to speak. Um, you know, really take an honest look at my part in 
of relationship challenges. Um, connection, you know, making sure I kept connection going because of all those years of not having connection. You know, I call people um, and uh, try to make that a daily part of my life as a support system. Um, reading of positive, supportive materials every morning and listening to things, audiobooks, you know, meditation and con really the meditation helps a lot in the connection with people and then really taking an honest look at things and making right whatever I, I had of the possibility of doing, trying to do for others, helping other people with even just little things or being a support system for someone or um, a positive energy for someone who's having a hard time, helping people, you know, taking the emphasis off yourself and um, giving back and helping someone else. But looking back on your journey, right, from your teenage years through now. I know you told me you, one of the things you wanted to do was to speak to young people, whether it's your grandchildren's generation or in between. So what would you like to tell young people who might be listening to this? They might have similar leanings or behaviors, right, with, re with respect to substances or alcohol. Talk to someone, you know, reach out, share how you're feeling and uh, find a group of people or one or two people in your life that you can call and talk to about what you're feeling and what you're going through. And be honest, you know, don't pretend it's one way when it's really another way. It's okay to be vulnerable. Um, it's really important to have an open line of communication with someone you trust. And um, it may not necessarily be your parents, uh, may not necessarily be even an older person. Just that connection with someone else and just speaking the words, getting it out of you and into the air to dissipate a little bit, you know, it's kind of like takes the steam off it. Um, and just really know that this is part of growing up going through these changes and don't avoid those uncomfortable feelings by trying to push them down with something because inevitably they catch up with you. And at a certain point in your life, you're going to have to face, face those things and then they'll be 10 times more in volume and harder to get to. If you look back, because it sounds like you said you had composure and you perhaps didn't talk about it with your mother or what you were experiencing. What would have helped in you being able to connect with someone on this or to open up? Well, one thing that I learned um, years ago when I was raising my son, we went to a school and one of the things they talked about was there was group, group sessions where people really talked in a group. And um, one of the things that they talked about was that you can't, don't point if it was a parents and children working through whatever difficulties they were going through and parents very often 
will point a finger at the kidney. You need to change this, blah, blah, blah. You need to do this. You need to do that. And they're pointing the finger at the kid, yet they have three, pointing, three fingers pointing back at them. And what really turns a kid around is to see that adults around them are willing to look at themselves and do the work on their character defects and their things uh, and show that they have those in the first place, but actually willing to show that they have these character defects and that they're willing to do the work, to work on themselves. And that is really what young people respond to. It's not do as you say, it's do as you do. They watch you. And if they see you're willing to do that, then they will follow and they'll take that lead. And I think adults are so afraid to show their weaknesses that they make the kids feel like something's wrong with them if they have imperfections and, and, and character defects that they need to work on. And then, you know, it makes them feel bad. Switching gears a little bit. You mentioned building your life from here on out. So what are, what are the things you would like to see happen in your life that are different from what have happened in the past, in the next five to 10 years? Hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I have so many things I'd like to do. I mean, selfishly uh, things, but the main thing uh, is I really do want to spend a lot of time and energy into promoting awareness about the importance of soil regeneration and composting and those kinds of issues. Of course, I still want to do my art, more art. I want to travel. I can't wait till we can start to travel again. I uh, love doing that. And um, But the main thing, I feel this urgency to really put my time and energy into this environmental issues. So let's talk about emotions and what a healthy set of emotions is. Yeah, and you know, I often teach people in my clinical years that, you know, a healthy set of emotions is actually feeling the anger, feeling the sadness, feeling the happy, feeling all, the whole range of emotions. That's healthy. It's not, mm-hmm. not just the positive end, right? And of course, when things are very, very overwhelmingly dark, okay, that's a reason to get help, but that's, that's healthy emotional functioning. So given that you have this incredible exposure to music and the creative arts and you are an artist, can you tell us a little bit about how at least your process in terms of creativity and art helps you with mental health or psychological well-being? Yeah, it's um, this is something that I tell people because I actually went through rigorous training in Florence, Italy, old master style painting and drawing. And you can learn, if you want to put the time in, to draw and do art by taking a course. You don't have to feel like you have this proclivity to it. But the other thing is, there's something that happens when you just bring yourself to a pad with color or markers or watercolor or clay or collage, or anything, even a vision board, you know, if you just get yourself to sit down and do something like that, something else happens. It's like the universe 
channels through you. There's an energy that comes that supports doing it, you know. And after you do it, there's like relief, you know. You can just take a brush with water on a watercolor pad and, you know, paint something with the water and then just dab little brushes with different colors on it and watch it spread. And something happens in your brain when you do that. And knitting or crocheting, you know, things like that. That also does something to your brain. It sort of cross-connects the two sides and um, balances it. Uh, there's, it, you don't have to be, you know, Picasso or Renoir to, to, to be creative and get the effects of what it does to your brain. Just sit down and do something, you know, creative. You know, rip pages from magazines and glue them together to make a color rainbow or whatever. It doesn't matter. I think it's really... And sitting and thinking about it isn't the same. Something else happens when you go to do it and you get the things together and you sit down. There is an energy that just comes down. Like when I start to do a commission, a painting or a drawing... I don't necessarily know what I'm going to do when I sit down or go to it, but something does happen when I prepare the water or the paints or the canvas or whatever. You know, something happens when I sit down to do it. There's like another force that comes with me, and I don't think it's just because I have a talent. I think there's more to it than that. Something happens. Agreed. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, these are all also protective factors in mental health. You mentioned many, right? Like connecting with people, mindfulness, being active, creativity, if that's what someone taps into. Um, These are all supporting the process of healing from things or just protecting in terms of well-being. I have one final question. I ask everybody this. If you had the ability to reach 50 million people, what would you want to tell them about mental health? Well, I've learned over the years that uh, there's so much you can do for your mental health um, yourself. And one of the things that I, I really think would be important is communication skills are really important. And not very many of us get taught communication skills at a young age and how to deal with conflict and how to express your feelings and emotions. And I think that's really important because the more you push down your feelings and emotions, the more they build up and then, you know, someone can trigger you. And it's not just your responses, your reaction is not just what's going on at the moment. It's all that stuff that's layers and layers and layers that goes so, so deep. Um, Another thing that people don't realize has a profound effect on our mental health and our mental state is uh, what we put in our bodies, food and nutrition, and how um, you know high-carb foods can really bring your mood down. Sugar can completely get you depressed and messed up. I mean, people that have terrible diets and put... Um, corn syrup and dyes and uh, all these additives. I don't, you know, learning to read the ingredients on products you buy in the market, in the supermarket that you're going to eat. You'd be amazed at how much they add sugar or multidextrin or 
uh, corn syrup or different things that really affect your mental state. And unless you've gone through like a nutrition program with someone where you write down what you eat and how you feel a few times a day or the next day and that someone points out to you, oh, well, notice that the next day after you've had ice cream or sugar or candy, it can take that long for your blood sugar to drop and your mental state. To, you know, it's it's profound, the effect of what you put your in, in your body. I can totally agree with that. I feel like there's a lot of evidence that's now slowly starting to come out about the effect of like different vitamins and macro and micronutrient profiles and like how that can really affect your mental health. And it's interesting because it's just so simple. Like they're very simple switches that you can do and they make such a difference on your like quality of life it's it's very true and and i i know i keep bringing this up but i've just learned so much about the effects of uh cell phones and wi-fi that that is another thing that um people don't realize has an effect on your emotional state some people are more sensitive to it than others other people it depends also of how many layers of exposure you're being exposed to at a time or in a certain place. And, you know, it's not something that's on the top of someone's mind to look at when you're not feeling good, when you're not sleeping well, when you're agitated, when you have palpitations, when you're brain fog, not being able to think clearly. Um, you know, it's just not at the forefront to look into, to experiment with, you know, um, taking away those things to see if you feel better. And very often that is really affecting people's emotional and physical states, joint pain, et cetera. So in closing, thank you so much for no, thank coming you. onto our podcast. It's lovely to speak with you. And thank you. Reflect with you. And we hope that people enjoy your story. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. Great. Thank you so much. You are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You are listening to our interview with Jolie Jones. Let's review Jolie's story. Jolie Jones is the daughter of an interracial couple, and for those of you who may not know, daughter of the legendary musical genius Quincy Jones. From a young age, she had global and creative exposures, which she describes as magical. She grew up in a household with little limitation on desires and dreams. In her early teens, she started modeling and was the first African-American to adorn the cover of Mademoiselle, a welcome and needed force for diversity and inclusion. Modeling, acting, and singing were some of the pursuits in her early years, alongside becoming a mother in her 20s. What you may not know about Jolie is that she's had a long history of substance use and alcohol use, and she's opening up with us today about her journey from her teens to the present, including her sobriety and recovery starting in 2018, two years ago. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of her story. One, emotions and substance use. Two, alcohol use disorder and its harmful effects. And three, neuroplasticity and its relation to mental health. First, what about Jolie's emotional life and how that relates to substance use in her teens? As you heard in the interview, in her early teens, Jolie's inner life was uncomfortable. And because she did not yet have the tools to identify and talk about what was going on inside of her, 
she started to use substances. First, Valium to take the edge off, then Speed for energy, and then a multitude of drugs in the context of the 1960s, with her use peaking at age 16 around the time she moved to LA and amidst Hollywood glam. Alcohol became a common theme going forward. More recently, Jolie describes how she's been hidden from the modern world due to electromagnetic hypersensitivity and escalating levels of alcohol use. Since 2018, after a few scary situations of driving and not remembering due to being heavily intoxicated, Jolie has been sober and in recovery from alcohol use disorder, and she has bravely decided to reveal the more hidden side of her life with the hopes of helping others and emphasizing the importance of gaining awareness into one's emotional life. She knows from experience that drug use is detrimental and, quote, like a stop sign on emotional development, end quote. We know that both alcohol and drug use go hand in hand with mental health issues. And as you heard in Jolie's story, that she was self-medicating the feelings of discomfort with Valium in her teens, this story is all too common. I wonder what would have happened if instead of the Valium, she was given the tools to tap into her emotional life and deconstruct the discomfort. This is our hope to help you understand that there's value in placing a priority on emotional development and gaining awareness into what drives you, what makes you uncomfortable, and what may compel you to reach for drugs and alcohol. Second, what is alcohol use disorder and how can alcohol be harmful? According to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the United States, alcohol use disorder is, quote, chronic relapsing brain disorder characterized by an impaired ability to stop or control alcohol use despite adverse social, occupational, or health consequences, end quote. It affects about 15 million people in the United States. And to provide global context, according to the World Health Organization, if you look at all disease in the world, a concept known as global burden of disease, approximately 5% is attributable to alcohol. And in fact, alcohol is known to have harmful effects, including 3 million deaths each year from harmful use. And alcohol is a factor in the development of over 200 disease and injury conditions. We know that excessive alcohol use increases risk of stroke, liver cirrhosis, alcohol hepatitis, cancer, and other serious health and mental health conditions. Now third, what is neuroplasticity and how is it relevant to mental health? Think of it this way. The brain has a remarkable ability to adapt and change. That, in essence, is neuroplasticity. When teachers teach and we learn, when therapists help us recognize and help us change patterns in our thinking and in our behavior, we are essentially rewiring our neuronal connections. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a pattern of subconsciously going for emotionally unavailable partners in the dating world, but you don't know why. And let's say you start to work with a therapist who over time helps you see that you are actually terrified to be vulnerable. And this fear is perhaps the reason that you don't go for emotionally available partners. And one year later, after working in therapy, the pattern is deconstructed and you are now consciously dating available partners. Voila, that is neuronal change. Now going back to Jolie, who is an artist, mother, grandmother, creative, and champion for environmental issues, Bravo for the way that she's opening up about her journey with her emotional development and substance and alcohol use from her teens through to sobriety two years ago. Many people struggle with inner discomfort and confronting their own emotions and with alcohol and substance use disorders. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help.
Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on model mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.